From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 39, rather than an article, we bring you the audio from our Q&A event at the WS Society in Edinburgh on the 19th of May. The panel of Jonathan Wilson, Filippo Clare, Alan Patillo and Kevin McCarra answered audience and Twitter questions on a range of subjects including unintelligent footballers, the upcoming European Championships, safe standing and other Scottish football chat, the best goals they'd ever seen in the stadium and the shabbly in the Auxerre press room. Before we bring you the evening's proceedings, just a quick reminder that issue 21 of the Blizzard is now available to pre-order and will be released to subscribers on the 7th of June. Issue 21 is something of a Euro special and features, among others, Scott Murray on a selection of the key games from perhaps the greatest ever international tournament, Euro 76, Rob Smythe's greatest games feature on Denmark 3, Belgium 2 from the group stages at Euro 84, Philippe Auclair on the unconventional striker André-Pierre Gignac, James Montague on the drone controversy from Albania versus Serbia, as well as features on some of the coaches at this summer's tournament including Michael O'Neill, Jan Kozak and Leonid Slutsky. You can pre-order issue 21 from theblizzard.co.uk now and it will be released on downloads on a pay-what-you-like basis on the 10th of June to coincide with the start of the tournament. But for now, on to part one of our Q&A from Edinburgh. As with all our live events, we do the best we can with the available sound quality. Unfortunately, recording in large cavernous rooms means that you don't get studio quality sound, but hopefully that doesn't detract from your enjoyment of the evening. The first voice you'll hear is that of our host for the evening, Daniel Gray. Well, I am probably a lot more like you people in the audience down there, you people, um, in that I'm a fan. I've rarely met a footballer in my life. I write about football culture. I know more about burger kiosks than the Champions League. Um, so I'm always fascinated to be around real football writers, real journalists who get to meet footballers. So I'm wondering for each of the panel, starting to my right, who is the least intelligent footballer <laughs> you've ever met? We've actually prepared this question before, and um, we were hesitating among several uh, players of the same team and wondering if um, their intellectual lack of prowess meant the, that was the main reason why they were relegated from the Premier League this season. That is the English Premier League, and they finished last, so I don't need to tell you which club it is. But I think, you know, there, there are several kinds of... Um, if you talk about intelligence or lack of, uh, there is sometimes naivety. Uh, I was talking to, to the boys about uh, a chap from Arsenal who, when he arrived at the club, was given a mobile phone. And he thought that to use this mobile phone, you had to go in a phone booth. And it wouldn't work anywhere else. So, but that's naivety. But then there is another kind of stupidity, which is people who are absolutely convinced they are right all the time, even though they are wrong, and who are crap at their job. And... Um, Gareth, this is not on the record. Thank you. Um, I have to say the one who's impressed me the most in this is a mixture of... It's probably very tough on him, and good luck to Wales. <laughs> good luck to Wales. That's on the record. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Kevin. Oh, he's intelligent. That's me. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, football players sometimes like to be in one more monosyllabic and come across them in that way they can curtail the, the, the uh, interview and I think two uh, clubs are always have something hovering over them um, and 
stopping them from saying anything interesting at all costs. But um, I just would say that there are exceptions. I think um, uh, a guy who lives close to my house, Neil Lennon in Glasgow, has a beautiful house and is a, a charming man. Nobody believes it. They, th they think because he tackled people in midfield and knew what was coming next and stopped the, stopped the wave of attacks from the other team. And for some reason, that was considered an appalling you know, uh, thing to do, and he's a horrible man. He's actually a, a charming person who goes, has a normal life, and as, as I say, goes to the pub and things like that. And yet, um, I, I've never understood it. Is it because he was so clever at stopping the opposition, he just annoyed them? You know, um, and that became a flaw in his character rather than being a really good element of, inte of uh, intelligence um, to to cope with those uh, games. And um, so, I, so I'm glad now that he's uh, having a really peaceful life and uh, no one recently has tried to kill him, as, as, as far as I know. <laughs> but I'll be back later on tonight, I'll let you know. <laughs> Alan, feel free to break the mold and talk about intelligent players too, if you like. Well, I was just saying earlier, having spent about seven years of my life writing a book about Duncan Ferguson, I feel like my default answer to every question I'm asked about football is Duncan Ferguson. But um, it's probably possibly Duncan Ferguson. I, I happen to think he's a very, for me, I, I like to think he's quite an enigmatic character. But yeah, I suppose the view of most people is that he, he wasn't blessed in the, in the brains department. Um, I remember Craig Brown giving me a great story when I was researching the book about uh, a trip, one of Duncan's few... Scotland appearances, one of his seven Scotland appearances was in Athens, I think, uh, in a qualifier against Greece, and they were organizing a, a squad, a squad, um, a squad uh, outing in the afternoon, I think, prior to the game, and uh, Craig, Craig said to Duncan, 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 we're, we're, going, to, we're going to have to the Acropolis for an afternoon, we're going to you get ready for that, we're going to be leaving in an hour or so, and Duncan apparently replied, bloody hell, Acropolis, um, what a place, the nightclubs are open in the afternoon here. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so possibly that, yeah, I, I'd possibly have to, have to uh, probably say Duncan Ferguson. But he, seeing, seeing as we're in, in the capital uh, in Edinburgh here, um, I guess another, another player that comes to mind readily is, uh, is uh, Dero Dar uh, Gary O'Connor, who, who now, now, uh, now managing, you know, very impressively. I, I like the thought of him sort of starting down at the lower reaches at Selkirk managing. But, uh, yeah, I think... I've, done a few interviews with him over the years and uh, I think he possibly, you know, love him dearly, you know, a lovely guy, but yeah, doesn't think too much, you know, which possibly helps him on the football pitch, doesn't think too much. I remember Andy, Andy Roxburgh telling me that the, the, the best the best managers are those, um, well, he was explaining why the best players don't often become best manage, managers and he said because the, the best players are usually instinctive on the pitch and when it comes to thinking too much about things, you know, they, they, can't, they can't be doing with that, so... Yeah, I think Gary Connor is possibly a, a good, uh, you know, example of that. I think I had the uh, privilege of being at Selkirk Town in Gary O'Connor's dressing room recently while I wasn't there, looking at his tactics board, which does exist. Wow. <laughs> and and rumours that there were twelve men on there are, are yet to be confirmed. And uh, that was Stuart Pearce. <laughs> we've all done it. We've all done it. Uh, Jonathan. Well, it's, it's strange that this question was um, was posed. I, I arrived very late because I was coming back from Basel last night, so this is all planned without me, so it's, it's their fault if, if it goes wrong. Um, but weirdly, this, we were talking about this at about half past three this morning in, in a bar in Basel, um, largely because Micah Richards has emerged as a candidate for the thickest Premier League footballer ever. <laughs> uh, and I, 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 unfortunately, I can't remember what the details of the story, but for me, the benchmark is a, is a former Villa player 
And Kevin, you might remember this because we, we, we went to Sardinia just before year 2004. All the, um, all the pack who followed the national team went to the, the, um, the pre-tournament training camp in Sardinia and uh, the journalists were paired up and you got, the players were split in two and you, each pair of journalists got a player and then they got another player. So you each did two interviews, you, you shared all the quotes. And I was you know, very, very junior, so I, I was pretty low down the pecking order for, for who I got. So in the second round, I got Phil Neville, which is fine, because Phil Neville will talk all day, he's very interesting, um, yeah, very bright guy, very articulate guy. The first round, I got Darius Vassell, and there was a real reason why they gave him to the, the new kid. Uh, I, I think in 20 minutes, he might have said 20 words. Um, but the, the, the story about him, that, that sort of confirms that it's not just he's inarticulate, he's actually fundamentally stupid, <laughs> is that he, he had a swollen toe. Uh, and so he did what, you know, the natural thing. He went to his garage and got a small drill oh. and drilled through the toenail to release the pressure. It, it, it didn't work. Um, <laughs> But then it also occurred to me, just, just to talk about, there's, there's a lot of um, stories about footballers uh, that are uh, apocryphal. So one of the famous ones uh, is about Ian Rush saying that playing in Italy was like playing in a foreign country, which he, the poor bloke never said. It was Kenny Dalglish made it up to take the mickey out of him. And then the, the other story about Ian Rush, which I don't know if it was a Dalglish invention, I, I cannot believe this is true, is that um, there was some sort of revered old journalist from North Wales who, who Rush had known when he was, was growing up, um, who, who died. And so supposedly a journalist rings Ian Rush for, for a quote for the, for the obit. And uh, Rush says, oh, God, he's, he's dead. What, what did he die of? And, and the journalist says to him, yeah, you know, it was the, uh, the big sea. And Rush goes, what? He drowned. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but as I say, I... I I don't think that is true. <laughs> right, well, wanted to, to begin my first question talking about fans and supporter culture and uh, with reference to Celtic Park, really, because the, the first of the safe standing area has begun, as you'll know, in the last couple of weeks, the construction of, I should say. Kevin, on, on the, uh, the Celtic front, do you think it'll work well? Are you in favour of, of reintroducing standing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the idea that sta that uh, standing up was a cause of disaster is crazy. Mm. I mean, I, I, it never was. Enforcing people to sit and, uh, as they did, um, and still, still does happen in most crowds. Um, big, big. Uh, I mean, Hampton, for example, is all seated and so on. And um, I think uh, when you're forced to stay exactly where you are and not move along or whatever. You feel as if you've just been an automaton or something. You're not a person. You know, you can't wander about the ground all that easily. And um, I think for that reason, the, the the barrier of seats. I mean, obviously we need seats, but um, but it should be. There must be areas too where people can surely stand and watch a game and enjoy it without thinking they're about to be killed at any moment. I mean, I think it's uh, the, the the design of these grounds now doesn't really have that um, possibility of, uh, of, of that kind of disaster again. Alan, will it work at Celtic? I, I, think, I think it will, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm intrigued to find out how it goes next season, but I think it will work, and why shouldn't it really? Um, I mean, as Kevin was saying, you go to a game now, you go to 
a big game now. I was at one, um, and for my sins, I'm a Dundee fan, so I was at uh, Ibrox a few weeks ago for a Scottish Cup game, and it was 45,000, 40,000 people there, and uh, we were all standing. Everyone was standing, you know. Um, you know, legs getting almost sort of, uh, cut off at the knee there when you're sort of surging forward a bit. So, yeah, I mean, I think to, to have an a, a all-standing area um, which, which sort of complies with the safety restrictions, etc. I think it's, an, you know, it, it, for safety purposes alone, it, it, it is definitely, it should be coming in because it's dangerous right now, people standing in seats because if there's a surge, if there's a goal, you end up toppling over the seat in front of you and you know that that is dangerous so so yeah i'm, I'm fully in favor of it and um yeah you know hats off to celtic for for, for pushing it through i don't think it's been a good season unless you've got those bruise marks on those parts of you <laughs> for the whole of the summer jonathan do you think it could work in the premier league i mean a lot of the football i go to up here is standing anyway it's cowden beef it's air and places like that that still have beautiful terraces do you think it could work in this higher echelon as the, the premier league given how big crowds are well, it, it works in the Bundesliga, so why, why not? You know, Bundesliga has the biggest crowds in the world, so why, why not anywhere? Uh, and I, I completely understand why people are cautious about the reintroduction, but, I mean, the Bundesliga proves that you, you can do it. And I think, I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost a trivial point, but I think something has been lost from atmospheres because you can't move about, because you, know, you, you can't... Um, you know, if, if you and your mates buy tickets separately, you can't guarantee being together. And if, if you are standing, you can gravitate to, to your mates or um, people who, who enjoy the game in the way that you want to enjoy it. So you'd still have the seated sections for people who prefer to be a bit more sedate. But if you want to um, you know, sing and shout, then, then you can find other people who want, want to sing and shout. So I think it would, would improve atmospheres, which in the Premier League certainly have, have become um, tamer, uh, quieter. In the way. And standing's not the only reason for that, but, but it's a reason. So, so, yeah, I, I completely understand the caution, but I think the Bundesliga example proves that it can be done safely. I did find uh, in, how interesting it was to see people way, way back in the 70s standing on empty cans of lager, of, of which, many of which they've taken into the ground because there's no, no stopping it. You know, that, was, um, that was just part of the game. You, know? and, uh, you think nowadays, how did they get through that at Hamden without a... a, a, a disaster of that type you know so, um, so i mean although the atmosphere has gone a bit i think uh, it's a, a decent payoff in the uh, oh, absolutely but i mean if you can have both which a bundesliga seems to manage well yeah i mean that's only just beginning to get pet come in there isn't it yeah so that's um, the, the, one of the problems that the premier league um, especially the english premier league um, clubs will have when i say problems one of the reasons why they might be very reticent is that because of the amount of money they charge for the tickets, which come with a very comfortable seat in those new stadiums, you certainly can't ask people to cough up, you know, 60 quid for standing, you know, in not very comfortable situations. And I think they're, they're thinking of that because you could think, okay, it's going to be compensated by the greater number of people who can be accommodated, but it's what, 1.8 for one, the ratio, uh, which is deemed safe, but it's the limit, isn't it? So ideally, you'd like to have one for one so there might be a cost problem there, or rather a profit problem. Okay, well, we're going to come to the audience shortly, so get your uh, questions and abuse fired up. But first, we've got some Twitter questions from Gareth, who hasn't got a microphone, we'll have to shout. Uh, yeah, this first one is from uh, Cowden Harley on Twitter, saying, what's the panel's take on media saturation of football skewing what people expect of their team? So if you see Barcelona and Real Madrid on telly every week, you see that as the norm and then expect Cowdenbeath to do the same. 
It's a, a very good question. I think Cowdenby frequently do the same, but I have a strange soft spot for Cowdenby. Let's not go there. Jonathan. Um, well, I, th I think, I I'm not sure it's because people are watching Barcelona and Real Madrid every week that, that they, they sort of expect um, that kind of football from their team. Uh, I, you know, I, th I think people sort of like accept that Barcelona and Real Madrid are on a different level. But I think what certainly is true is that um, the, the, the mass focus on football, the, the, the need for stories, the need for narrative, has decreased the patience of fans. That, you know, we've seen it with Pep Guardiola. You know, he's, he's been in six uh, Champions League semi-finals. In, 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 he's, he's never not got to the semi-final of the Champions League. That's an extraordinary record. No other manager in history has a record remotely resembling that. And that's partly to do with the economics of modern football. But even then, there's other managers now who, who are nowhere near that. And yet, he's being described as a failure and a fraud because Bayern haven't won the Champions League under him. So, you, and that's an extreme example, but you see that replicated pretty much every club that, um, you know, the, the expectation that you should have perpetual success um, has, has you know, decreased the lifespan of, of managers. And, and, and um, I think Alex Ferguson made the point that reality TV has now created this culture where people expect to be able to vote people out. And so every week you have, which club's in crisis this week? You know, which club's drawn a game they should have won? And then the pressure's on that manager. And you look at that manager over a period of sort of three or four years, and, and their record might be very, very good. So Kike Sanchez-Flores at Watford this season, who at Christmas, everybody was saying, was doing a brilliant job. And suddenly he's, he's out of the job. Whereas if you offered this season to Watford, you know, this time last year, they'd have, they'd have been delighted. I mean, the one thing, perhaps, as well, is that the, the, it means that the profile of the fan has changed. The audience has increased tremendously, but the attendances at the grounds haven't increased that much. Okay, it's packed in the top division, in some clubs, as well uh, in level two or three, but then suddenly you've got people who have got what they think is knowledge, understanding of football, and who don't go to football games. And therefore, who sometimes have some strange opinions to say the least. I mean, when you spend a bit of your life on Twitter, as we all do, heavens above what we get. Uh, and it's, it's clearly, yes, I think there is an idea that uh, every club should be able to, to play at this kind of level, otherwise they're crap. But anyway, it's not shades of grey. It's either crap or very, very good indeed. And, uh, but on the other hand, we're not going to uh, complain too much because we've got more work, huh? <laughs> should we? As we're on the heavens above Twitter, Gareth, any more Twitter questions? Uh, yeah, one from Ian Gorman. Um, for the whole panel, what's the best goal that they've ever seen live at a game they've been covering? Alan, if it's not Dundee, I'll... Um, I could... <laughs> no, I won't go to Dundee for this one. Uh, best, game, best goal I've seen live, definitely, I think, the Zidane's winner for, uh, for Real in, in, in the European Cup final at, at Hamden. Um, yeah, I can barely, even now, I, 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 my view of it is the view I saw of it live from Hamden, from the press box of Hamden. Um, just a wonderful left foot volley into the top corner. For some strange reason, I don't think I've seen it again on television for some bizarre reason. I just have not seen it. So my, in my mind's eye, it is, it is watching it live, and I, I think that increases the, 
the magic of it and, and just the artistry of it. So yeah, I, I don't want to see it again. I don't want to see it on TV, so I'm going to have to try and avoid it for the rest of my life somehow. But <laughs> Kevin? I was going to see um, Archer Gemmell's goal um, against uh, Holland. Uh, that was, um, <laughs> I'm a Scottish fan, but I think that was quite incredible, but skill to open up the, the game as he did in that, tight, in that game. Um, I, I, the sad thing is, I mean, Scotland are good players now, but I don't see anyone as uh, influential or as imaginative as that. You know, um, they're good players, but solid. But um, I guess you'd have to wait and see what happens as the years go by. Does somebody suddenly appear and, and ignite the whole thing again? Um, Scotland are a quite a decent team, but um, when you get um, uh, Lewandowski, for example, doing something that's, that's just a fantastic shot and that finished um, Gordon Sackin's hopes of getting to Euro 2016. One brilliant shot and that changed the whole thing. Jonathan? Um, I, I, I think there is, you, you're absolutely right about the, the difference of being in the stadium and there's something about just the angle you might happen to be at. So um, at, at, the, at the World Cup in 2014, I was at the Colombia-Uruguay game and I was right in line with James Rodriguez when, when the ball dropped to him. And you sort of thought, oh, if he just chests that up, he can volley that. And then, of course, sure enough, he does chest up and volleys it. And I was, I was right behind the line of that shot. And you could see it was going, you know, a foot under the bar, a foot inside the post. So, much as I'd like to say Colin Pascoe's leaping head of a Sunderland against Chelsea in 1991, <laughs> I think realistically, probably that James Rodriguez goal at the World Cup. Um, the, the best I've seen in terms of technical terms, without a doubt, is Dennis Bergkamp for Arsenal against Newcastle. That, that was absolutely extraordinary. And the reason why I think it's the best is still, I, don't, I still don't understand how you can do it. I'm, I've watched it about, that's the difference. Mm. I've watched it about a thousand times. I still don't know how he does it and how he thinks about it. But the one which moved me the most and which in many ways makes it the most beautiful goal for me that I've seen live was... Clint Dempsey's goal for Fulham against Juve at Craven Cottage because of the emotional quality of the night. And when, to be honest, in the, in the press box, we were not journalists anymore. We were all fans of Fulham, I have to say, because of the, the show they put on and because this grand, old, beautiful stadium was shaking like, like nothing. And out of nowhere, being from 1-0 down and condemned, this team qualified against mighty Juve Fulham, you know, and with a, this gorgeous chip by Clint Dempsey, so that's definitely the one for me. Okay, audience questions then. If there are any. Any, no. <laughs> Surely something. The fella there is taking Tony Adams-style offside appeal. <laughs> oh yes, of course, Tony Adams against Everton, 4-0. <laughs> I've got a question for three members of the panel. It'll be obvious which three. Uh, I followed Newcastle for uh, 40 years. 30 years of those in Scotland. In that time, we've not won a trophy and we've been relegated most decades. Yet I still think Newcastle are a big club. Am I deluding myself? <laughs> Anyone? Well, Jonathan should Jonathan's not allowed. Middlesbrough and no, Sunderland aren't allowed. Of course he's allowed. <laughs> um... They've won fewer trophies than Sunderland. They've won fewer league championships than Sunderland, which is the main, the real test of the side. <laughs> um, and next season, I don't want to rub this in, but 
God, I'm going to take the opportunity while I can. <laughs> uh, next season will be the first time since 1993 that Newcastle have been the third of the three northeastern sides. Uh, it'll be the first time since 1982, I think, that they've not been top flight and Middlesbrough and Sunderland both have been. Uh, of course, Newcastle are a big side. I mean, they get 50,000 fans every week. I mean, despite Mac Mike Ashley's attempts to, 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 well, his very successful attempts to suck the life out of the club, um, yeah, of course, they're a big team. As Sunderland are a big team. Sunderland are a better team as well. Nicer people, <laughs> nicer players. Um, greater history. Um, but if, if you're, you know, I, I, I think, you know, there's clear parallels between Sunderland and Newcastle. Uh, they both get, you know, 45,000 plus on a regular basis. If, and if that's not enough in the Premier League to, to make you a big team, then, then what is? I mean, both, both clubs have been horrendously mismanaged from a boardroom level in, I think, quite different ways in, in, in recent years that I think, while Ellis Short's made many mistakes, I think he essentially um, wants to do things that are good, whereas Mike Ashley, I don't really understand what he wants to do other than make a profit. Um, but, yeah, I, mean, I, th I think the lack of trophies is a is a slightly freakish thing. I mean, surely, surely sometime. Um, I have to say, when Middlesbrough won the League Cup in 2006, with a penalty that, that was kicked twice, so it shouldn't have counted, uh, <laughs> that was that was a dagger to the heart, because that was, um, you know, you could always look at Middlesbrough and go, well, yeah, you've never won anything. And now they're the Northeastern team who've most recently won something, and that, that's quite painful for somebody who <laughs> essentially considers being sort of like a, a, a stone in your shoe, you know, irritating, but not really important. I'm the host, so I can't comment. Alan? <laughs> I'm going to ask you about Newcastle. And <laughs> I, I find, no, it's especially yeah. living in Edinburgh, yeah. when I go down to Middlesbrough, there are loads of, uh, there's loads of Scottish support, yeah. for whether it's Exile Geordies or not, I don't know. It's interesting what the mark of a big club is. I mean, obviously, I guess trophies, we might come back to this later on in terms of trophy famines, etc. I mean, how long is it since Newcastle won a major trophy then? Oh, well, they won the first cup in '69. Is that a mark? I guess it is. I mean, what I find is quite uh, extraordinary in Scottish football. You're thinking Ross County and Inverness have won a major trophy more recently than, than Aberdeen. Is, is that a mark of them being bigger, bigger clubs than Aberdeen? Uh, perhaps. Um, I, I guess an Aberdeen fan wouldn't agree, wouldn't agree with that. But, uh, um, you know, so I, mean, I, I don't know. Who's the bigger club from Newcastle and Sunderland and Middlesbrough? If we've, I'd, I'd say Newcastle, but I'm probably coming at it from a... <laughs> you can have, probably, you can have clubs that, that, that have won nothing for quite a while and yeah. which are still considered, considered great clubs in other countries. I mean, uh, Red Star in Paris is most definitely one of the clubs that should be the best known and historically one of the most important in French football history. They haven't won a trophy since 1942. That's a long, long time ago. And they are now, um, you know, uh, they've, they've, had, they've been relegated God knows how many times, and they are now in the second tier of the French League, and there's genuine excitement about mm -hmm. it, because it could be, I mean, it's, it would be the same thing if not County, who haven't won anything for even longer than that, mm -hmm. came, back up, came back up. They are still, you can be a crap team and a great club at the same time, and Newcastle are certainly both. Okay, another audience question at the front here. A question for the biographers on the panel. Um, what was the hardest part of doing the biography? What's a good story that never made it in? And what was the reaction from the, the subject to your, your books? Me, for me? Yeah, to all, the, biograph the, all the biographers on, on, the, on the panel. <laughs> you, you've all done biographies in, in their own way, haven't you? So. Yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate that, that um, 
your Clough was dead by the time I did mine, so I was quite safe. Um, I, I don't know what the family thought. I, I, you know, I wrote to Nigel before I wrote the book, and he said he didn't want to be involved, which is fair enough. And I've uh, tried to leave family stuff out because I think you know, people have a, uh, a right to privacy. Um, so, I, 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 I mean, my, my situation is very different, obviously, to, to doing people who are still alive. Mm. Um, well, my, yeah, my subject was very much still alive. Uh, Duncan Ferguson, I, I, did, I did write to him. I, I wrote to him, I wrote to his parents as well, because um, when I started writing the book, Duncan had disappeared off the earth as read. far as I was concerned. You can read. You can, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I never got a reply to the letter I sent. But, uh, but he, he had disappeared, and I thought, and I was just fascinated by the story of, of, a, of a guy who, who, you know, was one of the big name Scottish footballers of, of the time, and just turned his back on the game and, and in a very enigmatic way, scored a goal with his uh, last touch in professional football, uh, a penalty that was scuffed. He scuffed, and the ball came back, rebound against uh, West Bromwich Albion, and he just managed to get in the rebound which uh, I thought just kind of summed up his career almost and then he disappeared so I thought I, I resolved to write a book about this chap but yeah obviously I knew his, his reputation with press um, isn't wasn't great and um, the great story about the time he was interviewed I think Goal magazine and uh, for once Duncan had managed had, had, had been um, he'd agreed to sit down with a journalist to do, to do an interview um, um, but it was to, it was to um, to market his new mitre book, books. So the, journal, the, the journalist went, uh, journalist from, from, from Go Magazine went and, and, and to do an interview. And normally in these situations, you know, you get the books questions out of the way, you get that done, then you go on and have a more rounded conversation. But, but Duncan was absolutely adamant that, no, no, it was just going to talk about mitre books and that was it. And so the, this, the, the journalist, uh, Bill Burroughs, did a great piece sort of uh, just taking the piss out of Duncan really in the end, just basically saying just verbatim how these questions would go. He'd ask a question, Duncan, I'm, I'm here to talk about mitre boots, that's it, I'm not going there, you know. <laughs> and he just did this wonderful piece which, uh, which the, the magazine ran the next month and then, uh, yeah, and then apparently Bailey, the magazine Bailey reached the, uh, the newsstands and the uh, mitre PR girl was on the phone <laughs> saying, you know, what the hell have you done to my, to Duncan Ferguson? So yeah, so possibly that's another reason why Duncan didn't speak to journalists, but he certainly didn't speak to me I wrote to him, um, pointed out what I was saying, pointed out what I was hoping to do. I told him it would be a sympathetic book, book, uh, book but um, he didn't get back to me. I went to his parents' house, knocked on the door in Stirling, and, and just to sort of try and outline what I was doing, but no answer. And I, I still remember being, being my knees were almost knocking at, at the doorstep, and uh, no answer. So anyway, I wandered away, got into my car, went down the road, went round the roundabout, end of the road, came back up, and there was this sort of figure peering out the window. Clearly, sort of saying, <laughs> clearly, sort of thinking, who the hell was this at my front door? And I don't know whether it was Duncan or whether it was Duncan Ferguson Sr., his father, who apparently is even more fearsome than Duncan's. I didn't particularly want to meet him either. But, uh, but yeah, so. It's like the Biff of Bacon family. Yes, well, it kind of is, actually, yeah. Uh, even Jim McLean, apparently, was the, the fearsome manager of Dundee United, was, 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 was petrified of Duncan's father. Um, so, yeah, in the end, I, I didn't, to answer your question, I didn't make. I didn't get an answer from Duncan. I wrote the book and it came out and, you know, I'm still here to, to tell the tale, I think. So, you know, he hasn't sued me yet either. So I ho hope he's okay with it. I've sent him a copy and, um, you know, I'd like to think I presented both sides of the Duncan Ferguson argument, really. Kevin, on, on biography, wh when do you choose to leave things out? Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, th uh, th football is not all that uh, kind of uh, volatile. We make it up. As, as, um, 
I, I, go, I go other way off. I just find them as being fairly ordinary people like me or you or so on. But they're under extreme pressures. And, um, you know, they're maybe worrying about losing a place in the team. And that can happen from one week to another. Your, your form goes and you're in the wilderness. So um, I, I think um, football players have to have a, a, tough, a, a tough hide. It's, um, it's a great uh, career and, and the, the money is vast. But um, I think players always feel vulnerable. A new manager comes, he drops you, or you get an injury and you think, it's, oh, you're getting on a bit, I'll, I'll leave him on the, on the bench and so on. I think anxiety is um, far more associated with football players than with joy and happiness. I think they, they worry a lot. As we're approaching half-time, I'm going to come to a question at the back of the room there. Someone was waving madly there, I think. I'm listening to the answer. But by the way, I just wanted to say one thing about biographies. Uh, you say, where do you stop? Uh, it's something called a legal read. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the publisher. Okay, the question there. Apologies. Depends on the lawyer. Can anyone hear me? Yeah. My question is, uh, which club would you say has been most mistreated by modern football, and why is it Coventry City? <laughs> Philly? As you didn't get to answer. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I cannot answer this question. Maybe you should answer it yourself. Um, I just don't understand what's going on in that club, and you talk about... Again, a great club, and, and actually not a crap team. I, I, to be honest, I don't think I'm in a, pos a position of authority enough to, to make many comments about Coventry, because my last memory of Coventry is 1987 FA Cup final. So I'm genuinely not um, qualified to, to talk about the Burnham Sky Blues, I'm afraid. So it's the, the way the modern game's been cruel to a club. Do any examples come to you? Well, uh, I mean, with respect to Coventry, obviously they've... Uh, They've suffered terribly recently. Um, maybe I'd have more sympathy if um, they hadn't cheated someone to relegation in 1977. That's, uh, that's the Jimmy Hill story, right? The Jimmy Hill story, yeah. Okay. Um, there was, um, this is God, I can't, five, six years ago, Fulham unveiled the statue to Johnny Haynes, and they got loads of Fulham greats back, and it happened to be a, a, a Fulham versus Sunderland. It's a game you'd think should not be in any way sort of volatile. Um, and then as these Fulham legends parade out, and you've got you know, Alan Mullery and people, and Sunderland fans are politely applauding them, and then Jimmy Hill comes out, and there's just this deluge of abuse. It's, I mean, there's loads of clips on YouTube of it. It is some of the loudest, foulest abuse you'll ever hear. It was magnificent. <laughs> and the reason for this is in 1977, uh, Sunderland had gone up in 76 with the remnants of a team that won the Cup in 73, uh, but Bob Stoko had fallen ill, and he ended up, um, I think Sunderland only won two games when he, he uh, retired because of ill health in, I, th I think, the beginning of December, maybe in the end of November, but you know, about a month before Christmas. And Sunderland are in a terrible position. There's no way they're going to avoid relegation. Jimmy Adamson comes in, decides to promote loads of kids, essentially to get ready for the next season, assuming they're going to go down. And among those kids who come through were Kevin Arnott, who was a, a very gifted, very cultured midfielder, Gary Rowell, who I think is the fourth or maybe fifth highest Sunderland goal scorer of all time, and was sort of a great goal scoring legend of, of, of my youth, and Sean Elliott, who uh, was sort of a ball playing centre back, could play at the back of midfield. His career was was um, he, he was crocked by Graham Souness, never never came back properly after an injury. Um, I'm sure it was a fair challenge. Um, 
I've drifted completely off point. Anyway, so we have this beautiful young team that starts playing fantastic football. And there was four successive home games when someone scored at least four goals. And they're climbing away from, from the bottom. Gets to the final day of the season. And Sunderland went to Everton. And if they got a point, they'd have stayed up. Um, Bristol City and Coventry were also in danger of going down. And if it was a winner in that game, the loser went down, irrespective of what Sunderland did at Everton. If that game was a draw and Sunderland lost, then Sunderland went down. But that was the only circumstance in which Sunderland could go down. Because Sunderland being Sunderland, a bit of pressure if they lose 2-0 to Everton. Um, and Coventry versus Bristol City mysteriously starts late. Uh, because of crowd congestion, which in literally no other game in the 70s in England started late because <laughs> of crowd congestion. Nobody had even invented the term crowd congestion <laughs> till Jimmy Hill has this idea. Jimmy Hill being the Coventry chairman at the time. Um, so the game starts late, so they know the final sort of 15, 20 minutes that they just need a draw. And guess what? They, they play out a 2-2 draw. The Sun scores on the scoreboard. The, the players literally sitting on the ground, kicking the ball to each other. It's it's one of the you know it's 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 an, it's, it's an abomination. It's um, it, it defiled football. It defiled fair play. This beautiful young team destroyed by this evil cynic. <laughs> um, and the, the the football league investigated and they they sanctioned Coventry and Jimmy Hill, but no penalty. So if Karma has come back to bite Coventry, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Right, well, um, on, on, that, on that private hell, we better, we better go to half-time and uh, feel free to boo us off, but see you in 15 minutes or so. 